0: chapter 6. And as you do, I will remind you, or for those of you who were not here last week, inform you that we are in part two of a four-week series on biblical parenting. We paused our study of the gospel of Luke that we've been going through verse by verse for actually just about exactly a year. It will probably be about a -a two-and-a-half-year study in total, and decided to pause in Luke 9 to study this issue. And last week, by way of introduction, and I'd recommend if you missed that, you could go back, listen to our podcast, go to our website, listen to that. But there were two main reasons why um, the elders thought this was a timely and appropriate um, series of messages. The first was the unprecedented blessings that God has given us, that in the last five years, over 45 children have been added to this body through adoption and birth. 45. A total 20% of those who gather on a Sunday morning. That is a tremendous blessing. Tremendous blessing. But also we noted that we live in a day and an age where the world is at an unprecedented confusion on these issues. And, and what, what is the responsibility and goal of a parent? What, what are children called to do and how do we do this? We also talked about how this isn't simply instruction that God gives for those with children. As the body of Christ, we become fathers, we become mothers, brothers, sisters. So Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, how is he to address older men as fathers, older women, mothers, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. We become the family in the body of Christ so that those without fathers, those without mothers, find them in the church. This is our responsibility to each other. These are messages for all of us. And ultimately, as we study these issues, we're going to learn who God is better for. He has revealed himself to us as a father. He has called upon us to address him as father, we his sons and daughters. What does that mean? Well, as we study what the Bible says about fathers and mothers and children, we will learn. And so last week, we gave the introduction. This week, we're going to focus on the question of the parent's primary responsibility. And I think it's important to focus in on something this narrow. If you're going to play a sport or a game, what you need to know first and foremost is, is what do I have to do to win? What's the primary activity? So if you're playing basketball, it's, it's to score baskets. And everything else is coordinated around attempting to do that for your team and blocking the other team from doing that. What, what's the primary purpose in football? To, to get the ball into the end zone. And again, all of the positions and all the plays and all of the formation is around getting your team to do that and stopping the other team from accomplishing that goal. If you're playing a game like chess, what's the primary goal? To, to checkmate the opponent's king and to protect your own, right? And all of the gameplay and all of the strategy is built around those main goals. So I want to ask, what is the main goal, the main responsibility that the Lord gives to parents? There's a lot of possible answers, right? Um, I think our culture might say that your child becomes a well-developed, socially uh, um, developed citizen who goes off to college, gets a good education. These are all good things, but I don't think they're ultimate things. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get God's instruction. Let's read together Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Very familiar passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. You remember last week, the the text in the New Testament that sort of gave us the outline of our study in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll just read that again as Paul instructs. Deuteronomy gives this charge to the parents, and Paul makes it clear that of the parents it is the father, not the mother, the father who is primarily tasked with leading this charge, the one who will give the ultimate accountability to God. Verse 4 of Ephesians 6, fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're going to spend our time this morning talking. What does that mean? What does that entail? What dangers can get in the way and what rewards are offered to those who will be faithful in that task? So we're going to look at this in three points. The first, the nature of the task. The nature of the task. We see right here, Moses gives to Israel their fundamental monotheistic statement, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This is sort of the equivalent of John 3.16 for the Old Testament. This is their central creed. All the other nations believe in many gods. And Israel believes the Lord, their God, is one. And then what is due, what fealty, what obligation is there to this God? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's important to notice before we get to the issue of children, God has a word of instruction for the parents. And so, what is the nature of the task of parenting children? Well, the first point, A, in your notes, is to receive God's word in your heart. Receive God's word in your heart. There can be no passing on of God's word. Without first internalizing it, without first hearing and receiving and believing. You cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot pass on what you do not believe. And we can skip over this. We can can somehow think just because we can speak truth, even though we don't live truth, even though we don't believe truth, that somehow that will profit the hearers. It will not. I remember um, being at a Shepherds Conference at, at Grace Community Church, and and Eric Alexander, I think some of you heard me tell this story before, was speaking on the importance and, of this issue that those who would teach God's Word, and every parent in this room is called to teach God's Word. Understand that. But the importance of those who teach God's Word model God's Word. The reason why the Bible gives long lists of qualifications for elders, for deacons... <laughs> Because God will not tolerate a separation of the hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing another. And Eric Alexander, in speaking on this, he's got a rich Scottish brogue, read Ezra 7.10. This is a wonderful statement about Ezra as he began to teach the people of Israel. And it says, "For for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And he was emphasizing the importance, studying God's word, doing it yourself, then teaching. And he leaned over the pulpit, and, in, and I'll attempt to model that. In his rich Scottish brogue, he said, Everyone knows the ad man says such and such of coda tastes so delicious. But what they really want to know is when you go home and you're not in front of the TV camera, do you drink your own soda? A decade on, and I remember that. That stuck with me. That stuck with me. And if I keep repeating it, you're going to remember it too. Um, but there's some profound truth there. There's some profound truth. And the first task of parents is to believe, to receive, to apply, to model this truth first and foremost. We remember the haunting words, or encouraging, depending on the context of Luke 6 40 every student when he is fully taught will be like his teacher we have to receive god's word in our own heart which means if you're a parent the first question is where's my heart at with the lord where am i in relationship to god's word have i come to know christ by faith have i turned from my sin and received the lord and believed on him am i feeding from this word am i submitting myself to this word you know, parents, you're going, to, you're going to call your children to obey you. There's a first question. Are you obeying and submitting to the Lord? That needs to be asked. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, these commandments and words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's, that's the first step. Receive God's word in your heart. It can't be skipped over. B, teach God's word to your children. Teach God's word to your children. There it is in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teach God's word to your children and fathers again. In in Ephesians, Paul makes this clear. Fathers are to lead the charge. I want to make a pause here. Maybe you you don't have spiritual fathers. Maybe you're in a marriage that's unequally yoked. Maybe you're a child whose father's not on the scene. That's okay, because in the church, Jesus said, anyone who's left mother and father and sons and daughters will find, in this life, manyfold mourn. In the church... We become mothers and fathers. But for those of you who are fathers here, this is primarily your job. You don't get to say, well, I, I'm the breadwinner. I earn the income. The wife can take care of this. No, God's going to hold you responsible for this. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's a teamwork here in Deuteronomy. It's both parents. Absolutely. Your job, what's your fundamental role as a parent? To teach, to shepherd, to instruct, to train. children. That's the fundamental job in its simplicity. What what does God want the parents to do? To teach them what God's word says. And that involves studying God's word. That involves knowing God's word. That involves being able to communicate God's word. That involves studying your children because you don't teach everyone the same way. You know this. There are some people who are very analytical. There are some people who need lots of illustrations and everything in between. You're teaching your children. God's word. And jump to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, where this again is emphasized and repeated. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Moses completed writing this book of the law. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones. There's a corporate gathering and the children are there. Little ones. And the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. How do you learn to fear the Lord your God? Well, in part, you learn to fear the Lord your God by hearing His Word. Beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. How do you learn the fear of the Lord? You hear His Word read all the words of the law that their children um careful sorry assemble the men women little ones and sojourners within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to the Jordans to possess See, this is a responsibility both of the corporate gatherings, one of the reasons why we would encourage parents to, as early as possible, train their children to be able to sit in the service, as, as early as they're able to hear and understand the pattern we get from Scripture, even the very fact that in Ephesians, think about this, Ephesians, the apostle is directly speaking to children. What's the assumption? That when the Ephesian church gathered together to hear, we've got a letter from Paul. It doesn't say, parents, tell your children for me when they get out of whatever group they're in, he's speaking directly to the children. So we would encourage you that as soon as you're able, as soon as your children are able to be trained to to sit still and not not be a disruption and to to be able to hear and understand, and I think that can be at a very young age, to, to gather together as the pattern of Deuteronomy 31 where Moses read the law to the men, the women, the children, the little ones. But that's also something you're doing at home. It's also something you're doing at home. And there's this emphasis in God's word that, that not only does he want us to honor him, not only does he want us to love him and cherish him and live for him, he wants us to pass it on to the next generation. Listen to Psalm 78 verses five through seven. He established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why? That the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. as four generations in view. So that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. God has in view multi-generational faithfulness. As one generation tells the next of who the living God is, the Lord, passing that information on. Parents to children, children to their children, their children to their children. Fathers, this is your fundamental task as a father. Teach and train your children. Mothers, there's, this, is, this is your calling of the Lord as he's blessed you with children. Teach God's word to your children. C, point C. Next, apply God's word to all of life. Apply God's word to all of life. Notice how Deuteronomy doesn't just leave it there at teaching, as if somehow, if you could formulate a classroom and got your your PowerPoint together and your, your outline and your lectures set, somehow you'd complete your task. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You're not just teaching, but you're, you're applying what you're teaching. One of, the, one of the beautiful things about gathering together corporately is not only that we all hear God's word, but we all know that we all heard God's word. So if you're looking around and you see someone and you know they were here on a particular Sunday, you, you can then talk about what you studied throughout the week because you know they were there. And parents, you can take opportunity. One of the things that we're, we're doing here in teaching is giving you things to talk about. Your children are, in, are learners, and they're learning. And not only in Deuteronomy, are the parents teaching, but, but as they walk through life, they're applying, discussing. You read through the Proverbs, and you get the picture of Solomon with his son walking, they get to an anthill. Consider the, the ant. Just applying God's Word to life. All of life. Sometimes the other danger we can do, we can be so focused on teaching our children and getting our children to come to faith that we never actually teach all that the Bible says on everything. We're just focusing on you know, four spiritual truths or trying to get our child to make a profession of faith, which is a wonderful thing. But Deuteronomy doesn't limit it to simply those narrow gospel truths, but rather all of God's word. The goal here is that the child is understanding the application of God's word to all of life. Or another way of saying this, wherever you go, whether you're rising or sleeping, whether you're walking, whether you're sitting, there are things around you to apply God's word to. And it doesn't always have to be a lecture. You're talking of it. It could be something as simple as seeing a beautiful sunset and commenting on children. Isn't our God wondrous? Look at that. Look at his majesty and glory on display. Or it can be Children coming up when they're scared because of a thunderstorm and reminding them of God's power, that he rules. And we can build planes that fly and cars that drive, and yet we see the movement of the seasons and the earth around us, and we remember that we are dust or any number of things. This is not a call to constantly be quick, take notes, stop, get out your notepad, I have a lesson for you. This is speaking of and applying God's word everywhere. Everywhere. Applying God's Word to all of life. And in this way, we can understand all of life. Understand that if God's Word is not central to your thinking, you will misunderstand life. You will. It used to be understood in all of our colleges that theology and Scripture was the queen of the sciences. You go, you go to Oxford, you go to... Yale, you go to Princeton, you go to Harvard, and their divinity school was the center that everything else orbited around that. Now, in our culture, we've got this notion that there's real life and the real sciences, and then there's personalized individual belief. And the challenge for parents, the challenge for all of us is to say, no, if there is a living God, and all things are from him, and all things are through him, and ultimately everything exists for him, that means you can't understand math rightly. Not rightly, not fully, unless you understand math as from, through, and to God, existing for his purposes. Biology, every science, every area and domain of information. The Bible speaks to so many areas in life. And the challenge that we've got to push back against is this notion that, no, there's, there's this sort of secular knowledge And then there's this sort of bolt-on faith element that's individually catered. No, the, the Bible claims to mean over everything that it speaks to, and it speaks to just about everything. And so the challenge in applying Scripture is showing how Scripture informs every decision, every area, every aspect of life. Notice that this task is not short. This is point D now. Speak of God's Word at all times. You're applying God's word to all of life, and you're doing this constantly. You're doing this without ceasing. This isn't just something you do on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, at devotions around the breakfast table, at family worship. This is something you're doing as a way of life. Now, again, you're not always teaching lessons. You're not always instructing. But but God's word and his praise should always be on our lips. And so as you go through life, and notice the the contrast. This is meant to be holistic, totalizing. Whether you're sitting down or walking, those are two opposites. Whether you're lying down or rising. Wherever you find yourself, it's a time to do this. Wherever you find yourself, it's appropriate, it's right, it's fitting for parents to be speaking of these things. You you get the impression that you couldn't in one sense do this too much you couldn't. Now the Israelites, sadly, well the Pharisees in specific, understood what followed as a literal command, that they're to bind them to their hands and their frontlets for their eyes, and they made these boxes they called phylacteries, and they would tie it to their forehead, and inside the phylactery they would write in Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through, I don't know, 9, and they'd somehow think they're obeying this. That's just foolishness. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's clear. You can you look at Exodus 13, 9, where the same language is used of the instruction of the firstborn. The point is this. Wherever you look, wherever you turn your head, wherever you see your hand, you're constantly being reminded. You're being brought back in your thinking to these things. Again, the picture is all of life being brought into and interpreted by and understood in relationship to God's Word. Everything you do, everywhere you go, Everything you look at is being understood through the grid of what God has said, informed by what God has said. That that is the challenge. It's a big challenge, I understand. (laughs) It's a hard task. You can't simply stop at teaching, but you've got to show how this applies. You've got to show how this factors in to everything. That is the nature of the task. And before we move on to the rewards of the task, which is our third point, I want to consider two obstacles to this task. Uh, that's, a, that's a difficult task. You'll take your life to do this. This isn't something you can just check a box or have a power hour once a week. As uh, I think it was James Dobson once said, there is no quality time without quantity time. And the very nature of this description is this is something incessant. This requires time with your kids. So what are two of the challenges that can get in the way of this? Well, the first I think we've already touched on is hypocrisy, hypocrisy. When you read the testimonies of children who reject the faith, who who abandon what they were brought up in, the most common objection is hypocrisy. My parents were hypocrites. The church was hypocrites. Now that I know that at times that might not be a true accusation, but the apostle Paul points out in Romans chapter two, God hates hypocrisy more than we do. And he says to his readers in Rome that because of you, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because they were teaching one thing and doing another. And who was Jesus most angry with? What, what sin was Jesus most um, combative towards? It was hypocrisy. The Pharisees who professed one thing and did another. In Luke chapter 6, which we've just been studying in the the past weeks, the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrisy. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I don't think there's anything more provoking and ugly than a person professing religious truth, especially insisting and demanding of their children and yet refusing in their own life to model it. Point I here, you remember from our study of the end of the Sermon on the Plain, our actions, what we do, reveals our true beliefs and values. Jesus goes on to say, for the good tree... No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? There's no hiding from our children. Again, it is much easier to put on a good face for Sunday morning, we get time to prepare, we put put ourselves together, keep it together for two hours or so on a Sunday morning, smile, shake hands. I I can fool many of you people, and you can fool me. You you can't fool your kids. They're, They're gonna know the real deal, aren't they? They're gonna know the real deal. and. Your, your talk is important, but your walk is more important. And out of the two, what you say and what you do, what, what do you think is going to influence and affect them more? They're going to know what we really believe by what we do. And so hypocrisy is a very real danger. Again, in Luke 6.40, we get these chilling words, or encouraging, depending as the case may be. disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This gets back to that first question, but in your own heart, are you a person you would like your children to become like? Because they will. They will. Again, as we focus on parenting, it may be that for some of us, we need to do some serious checking with where we're at with the Lord, where our priorities lay, our obedience. Are you somebody you'd like to see your children grow into? They will. In many respects, I think this is what the meaning of the oft-misunderstood warning of Exodus 34-7, that God visits the sins of the parents on the children. The children grow up in the home. They observe them. they, They imitate them. They take them on. Or sometimes they do the polar opposite, which is frequently equally unhelpful. Hypocrisy is a real problem. We don't want to be hypocrites as parents. But in the same way that we can, we can polar react and, and, and the pendulum can swing the other way, okay, we don't want to be hypocrites, but that then leads to the other possible danger, neglect. I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I won't say anything. That's not the right answer either. Neglect. One of the saddest statements in the Bible, turn to Judges chapter 2. One of the saddest statements in the Bible We've heard of God's desire for one generation to proclaim to the next generation. And if you think, what generation of God's people have seen the mightiest of his works? Surely, the generation of people that took possession of the land of Canaan have got to be in the top part of the list, right? They saw the walls of Jericho fall. They saw the Jordan part. They saw God's judgment on their parents who rebelled at Kadesh Barnea and died in the wilderness. They saw all of that. And God gave them a land. And they, they ate from vineyards they did not plant. And they lived in homes they did not build. And God defeated their enemies. And all of his promises, he was faithful. And in Judges chapter 2, we read this terrible terrible statement. They've just come in to the land. Joshua assembles the people, calls them to faithfulness. Verse 6 of chapter 2, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That's good. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. That's good. Who had, been, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So all the people who had seen the work that God had done, having seen that, they were faithful. They were convinced. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How is that possible? It's one thing that they didn't know the Lord. Maybe the parents were still faithful in teaching them God's word, and this was just a particularly rebellious and hard-hearted generation. No, they hadn't even heard what God had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And that is the introduction to the chaos and the anarchy that is in the book of Judges. Why do we have the insanity that takes place in this book? Here's here's a good reason right here. That generation of parents, perhaps they were too busy with their new vineyards, the new land they had to take possession of. Wealth and prosperity often has a way of, of distracting us from what is truly important. And that generation grew up, did not know the Lord, or what he had done, neglect. Now I said earlier that maybe one of the reasons we're tempted to neglect this is we feel incompetent. I, I've just told you that what God's calling parents to do is to teach all of God's word to all of God's life all the time, making application. And you might say to yourself, that's easy for you to say, Pastor Jeremy, you've been to Bible college and seminary and you, you're freed up vocationally to study God's Word, but you know, I work 50, 60 hours a week. I've never had those benefits. And the temptation might be then to think, okay, I'll just let the professionals do that. i let the pastors, let the youth pastor, let the church handle that. We cannot delegate this responsibility away. We cannot delegate this responsibility away. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in in understanding the purpose of the church and how we're to function. And Paul tells us why God gave pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets to the church. Chapter 4, verse 11. This is critical. Understand, where you will misunderstand what the purpose of the church is. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, see, it's not our job, it's not the elders' job and the deacons' job to do the work of the ministry. Because the work of the ministry, as we've just seen, is in part teaching these kids. It's not our job. Our our task, our mandate from God, is to equip, train, enable, help, come alongside and and strengthen you to do the work of the ministry can't ultimately delegate this off to the professionals for far too long in the American church that's been the pattern. you know don't try this at home, parents. we've got a professional. The professional usually had no kids and was you know barely old enough to shave, but that's okay he's hip, they like him no. God has called the parents to do this, and we can help. Our hearts desire to help. Pastor Daniel, myself, the elders would love nothing more than to help. And if you're saying, Look, I don't know how to do this, my kids are asking me questions I don't know the answers to, and kids have a habit of doing that, don't they? Does God have feet? Yeah. Um, actually, that's an easier one, but there's, there's some hard ones. We're here to help, to help equip you to that ministry. If, if you need, this is one of the reasons we offer courses and training in the Bible so that you will be equipped to do this. And if you're struggling, if you're feeling intimidated, ask for help. We, we're here to do, that's what Paul says we're here to do, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if you say, help, I need some equipping because I don't know how to do this. God has placed gifted men and women in this church to help precisely with that. But don't think you can delegate this off another reason we might neglect this and that is that as much as we give lip service and tip our hat to the importance of this task we've made other things more important i don't think there's any christian parent who's going to say this is unimportant but in practice where we spend our time where we spend our money where we spend our hours will reveal what we think is truly important i fear for many families education receives greater prominence. And I don't mean you shouldn't spend time in education, but I've I've seen families where I hope my child learns these things. My child needs to get into a good school. You get the difference. Maybe it's sports. I want my child to learn the Bible, but, man, I really want them to be on the starting team. Maybe it's some other skill, a musical instrument. Maybe it's being well-developed socially. There's a number of options. But when push comes to shove, what gets the time? When you don't have enough time to do everything you want to do, what gets cut out? That's the way to check your priorities. When you can't do all the things you want to do with your children, what gets cut out? Maybe we need to alter our lifestyle. And maybe it's not even just goals for the kids. Maybe it's the parenting goals. Maybe career advancement is put first and foremost. Maybe maintaining a certain lifestyle, and maybe it's other hobbies. But the simple fact remains that any parenting goal above this is an idol. Good things can become idols. It's not a it's not a bad thing to want your child to get into a good school. It's a good thing. But if you take this good thing and raise it as an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Eli, who trained Samuel, had sons who were worthless. They, they forced and shook down the people for money. They took cuts of the meat that wasn't rightly theirs. They slept with the women at the temple. And Eli did rebuke them on more than one occasion. And yet he stopped there. Listen to this indictment of Eli by the Lord in 1 Samuel 2.29. This is the word actually that God gave to Samuel. Imagine the challenge of having to go to your mentor and sort of father figure in the temple and say that God says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel? If we think we know what's best for our kids... And we pursue that, and not what God says is first and most important. It's idolatry. We, we, we need to check ourselves, because I know we want to do many good things for and with our children, but the way to evaluate where your priorities are, a challenge, this would be a good discussion to have, a good thing to think about over lunch. When, when push comes to shove and you can't get all the things done, what gets done? What makes the cut always? Is it Family time studying the Bible. Family worship. Or is it practice? Or is it hanging out with a friend? Whatever. Plug it in. Studying. Homework. What makes the cut? The two obstacles, hypocrisy and neglect. And we need to avoid those. I want want to end with something positive. (laughs) What's the reward? I want to put something in front of you to make this appealing and encouraging and delightful. The reward of the task. And we've already highlighted some of the rewards. There's just the reward of being faithful, being obedient. That is its own reward. There's the reward of knowing that God's word will continually be passed on from generation to generation as Psalm 78 says. The next generation might know them, the children not yet born, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope on God. But I want to point out four other benefits of this. First, In in teaching your children the Bible this way and at these times, you will make them wise for salvation. Wise for salvation. That's the way the Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, reminds him in Second Timothy three fifteen to sixteen, telling him how, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise. For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Parents, you you cannot, you are not sovereign. You cannot determine that your children will be Christians, but you can put them in the best possible position to come to faith. You can you can lay out God's word and you can make it beautiful as it is, and you can model it and you can call them to that. You can make them wise for salvation. Because truly, whatever your kids know, whatever your kids can do, whatever accomplishments they can perform, whatever college they get into, whatever GPA they get, whatever income they make, the words of Jeremiah 9, 23-24 will always be true. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, and he could go on to say, let not the student boast in his GPA, and let not whatever let him boast, boast in this. He understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What's your number one job? Your, your kids would know God's word, that they'd know the fear of the Lord, and knowing God's word and the fear of it, the they would know God. Second, your children would develop a biblical Worldview. What I've been talking about, about integrating God's Word into all of life is is what's modernly called is a worldview. People have worldviews. What a worldview is, is it's the big meta framework for how you understand all of life. And worldviews generally have to deal with a couple fundamental questions such as, who am I? And why am I here? And what is wrong? What has gone wrong? And how can what has gone wrong be made right? And our culture and the scriptures give radically different answers. Who am I? Culture. You're a chance production of random events in biology and a bag of chemicals. You're the image bearer of the living God. A being who will never not be. With a borrowed dignity and worth. It's tremendous. Why am I here? Secular culture. You are here to consume and enjoy You won't be here for long, so make the most of it. Why am I here? Bible. I'm here to come to know who God is, to enjoy Him and know Him forever, and to spread His glory and a passion for His kingdom to the world. What has gone wrong? Well, here, the secular world's got a number of answers. Um, Partially, it's going to be biology and genetics. Partly it's going to be your upbringing and and the way your parents dealt with you. Partly it's going to be your society. And more and more it's going to be the, um, the, the economic forces around you as more of a Marxist historiography takes place. All these facts, that's what's gone wrong. What's gone wrong? What's the problem with the world? I'm the problem with the world. You're the problem with the world. Sin in human hearts is the problem with the world. How can what has gone wrong be made right? Well, if it's the biological answer, it's going to be drugs and chemicals. If it's the parental, parents or what went wrong, then it's going to be counseling and therapy. If it's the economic factors, then the redistribution of wealth. We've got all these answers, and it's going to be education. It's to be all. The, these are the things we're looking to, to to make the world right, and they can do good in limited capacity. What's the real answer? How can what has gone wrong and made right? The gospel of Jesus Christ preached to all nations and all tongues as men and women bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and, and trust Him and His Word. That's how what has gone wrong can be made right. You see how worldviews matters, and then everything else can be plugged into that. As your children begin to understand the world as God's world, as they begin to understand those trees as God's trees spoken by Him, the rain coming down as His rain, the people they interact with day after day are image bearers who deserve our respect, and kindness. This is what's called worldview. And in the Proverbs, we get this modeled. You know, Psalm 119 verses 99 to 100 says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I have more understanding than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You hear that saying? I can understand more of what's going on in life because I know God's word. The Bible is incredibly practical. I did a study this week. In the book of Proverbs, over 25 times, the Proverbs begin this way, my son. As Solomon is speaking and educating and instructing his son, of those times, here are some of the examples of the topics covered. Again, we're getting beyond the simple, shallow teachings to to all of what Scripture has to say. My son, hear your father's instruction, Proverbs 1, 8-10. Forsake not your mother's teaching. They are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. A warning against bad company. A warning, a very practical warning about who your friends are, and who you run with. Chapter 2, verse 1, My son, as he extols the value of wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 1, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 311, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. 321, My son, if you will trust in wisdom, you will be secure and unafraid if you hear my words. Chapter 5, verse 1, and verse 20, Solomon warns his son against sexual sin and adultery. In our internet age, that is a warning we need to be giving our children. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 3 are warnings against getting into debt. You start to see how these are practical. These aren't just high-fluting ideas. This is teaching what very practical things. Your children have a theology of debt. Chapter 6, another warning against adultery. Verse 20, chapter 7, a warning against sexual sin. Chapter twenty three fifteen, 15, a warning not to be envious of sinners. Chapter 23, verse 19, do not gather with, don't make your friends among drunkards and the gluttonous. Chapter 24, verse 13, my son, as honey is sweetness for the appetite, so is wisdom for the soul. Chapter 24, verse 21, fear the Lord and the King and avoid those who do not do this. In Proverbs 31, 1 through 4, now his mother speaking the words of King Lemuel an Oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. The book of Proverbs is a great place to go because you get practical modeling of parents talking to children. And, and the, the breadth of topics, not just limited to, to Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which is, you, you gotta teach that, but teaching the full orbed biblical content to all of life, getting a worldview. Next, point C. What's another reward of this? That your children will be wise for salvation, they'll develop a biblical worldview, they'll also develop ethical wisdom and discernment. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. How is it that people grow in discernment? They do not be, grow up to be fools, easily led astray, tossed to and fro by every wind. How do you grow in ethical discernment? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. And we'll get our answer here by a negative description and a positive description of the mature and the immature. He's just talked about Melchizedek. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So parents, in your teaching, your children, you want to move beyond milk. You've got to start with milk, but you don't just stay there. In the shallows, you press on. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, constant practice, discerning good from evil. Finally, what's the final reward of doing this task faithfully? Joy for your own heart. Joy for your own heart. Just listen to a few verses as we draw this to a close. Proverbs 10:1 says, "A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow for his mother. Proverbs 23: 15 to 16: "My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too, will be glad, my inmost being will exult, and your lips speak what is right." Proverbs 27: 11. My son be wise and make my heart glad, that I may answer him who approaches me. One of my favorite passages. Third John chapter 1, there's only one chapter. 3rd John 1:4. The Apostle John writes this: I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, there I know it's not John's biological children, but just as the church is the household and family of god and last week we saw the continuity that things remain the same i would suggest to you that just as i have great joy when those who've been entrusted under my care are walking faithfully it's the same joy that parents have when their children are being faithful there's great great joy great reward take take this task seriously parents fathers in particular Take this task seriously. So if you need help, ask for it. If you need to rearrange your schedule to free up more time so that you have more time walking by the way and sitting and rising and sleeping and, and making your life line up more with the lives of your children, do that. If you need to check your own heart first and make sure, you, am I submitting to God's Word? Am I obeying God's Word? Or am i am a hypocrite? Deal with that. But do the necessary work. The rewards are great. God desires that our testimony be passed on. I just want to close reading Psalm 78, 5 through 7, once more. The Lord established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget like those generation and judges, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Let's pray. Lord God, you have called upon your people to do a hard task. Lord, this task is vast, never-ending, incessant. We'll never complete it. We can never take a break from it. You have called us at all times and all places to have your word on our tongues. And so, Lord, we confess our complete and total inadequacy to do this. And were it not for your grace and your spirit and your word and your people, this would be hopeless. But, Lord, you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You have given us your spirit to empower us. You have given us your word to instruct us. You have given us your church to equip and encourage and walk with us. And so, Lord, by these graces and by the never-ending constant stream of fresh graces and mercies that come to us day by day, we will take heart and take hope. Lord, give us the grace to persevere in this. Give us the grace to be faithful. We might reap the crop of righteous children, a next generation praising God. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.